Well, I want to begin today by talking a little bit about uh, your friends and my friends. If you're like me, uh, you have a friend who has a phrase that they use over and over and over again. And whenever they say it, maybe you give them the internal look that I have. It's something like this. (laughs) You know, maybe it's their... 1,000th use of the word like in a short conversation, or an um, or a you know. For, for me, I, I went to college with a guy, and he was from Chicago, and uh, his phrase was this, and whatnot. I don't know what whatnot means, but it just littered his conversation. It just was all the time. I worked with a guy once, and uh, his phrase was, and whatever, he would just be talking. He was, and, you know, and whatever, and, and whatever. And finally, I got so frustrated with it. In one staff meeting, it's church, so I'm going to be honest. I literally had a tick list going on my staff meeting agenda. And I just kept track of how many times he said, and whatever. And it, it got over 50. And so, and so in God's irony, this is often how God works for me, um, I became the person that I hated, you know. I developed my own phrase, and and my phrase, my wife pointed out at one point, was this phrase, I've been wrestling. This was the phrase that littered my sermons at one point, and I knew it was really bad when somebody came to me one Sunday with their sermon handout, and they had a tick list, (laughs) and it was really, really long. And uh, I said, well, did you hear anything else I said, or did you just hear that word? And they, they said, no, my blanks were all filled in. I'm good. So, so yeah, that, that's how God keeps me humble. But, but what was funny is I think back to that period and that phrase. I did overuse it, but it was absolutely accurate. I was in a season, some of you I've shared with this about, that, that I was wrestling with stuff like anger and bitterness and cynicism and disappointment. And I was working my way through those emotions and I didn't know what to do with them. And I was trying to figure out how do I hold on to those and still hold on to my faith. Maybe some of you are here today and you're wrestling with big things, big questions. Maybe it's the circumstance that you're in. Maybe it's a relationship that you're wrestling through. Maybe it's the fact that your life hasn't gone exactly the way that you planned or life just took a huge left turn that you didn't see coming. And I've been thinking about this, especially in light of the last two movies we showed during at the movies. We showed two movies about people who ended up in situations they didn't plan for or expect, and they were trying to work through the aftermath of them. In the movie Unbroken, you know, Louis Zamperini is wrestling through the experience of being a POW and then coming home with all of these internal scars this anger and bitterness and hatred towards his captors and the, the alcoholism that he uses to cope with that. Uh, This woman, Helen, who's this small child, didn't choose to be the son of an alcoholic who dies from his disease and who wrestles with her own inability to forgive herself that ends up coloring all of her relationships. And so as I was wrestling through, there it is, that phrase again, I'm going to start using it. Um, As I was working through this message and what we needed to talk about today, something came to mind. And so in the front of your cover, you see the title for today. It's Hope in the Struggle, Lessons from a Dusty Book of the Bible and from a Story in Progress. And so today I'm going to share with you for a few minutes about a book that many of you haven't been in since the last millennium. 
And I'm going to share with you the story of somebody who calls Cornerstone home that God has been working through. And hopefully through those two things, I think you'll discover hope in the struggle. The book that we're going to look at today in the Bible is this book called Habakkuk. No, I don't have phlegm stuck in my throat. That's actually the name of the book. Uh, I call it Habakkuk. Some people call it Habakkuk, and I'm just glad that you know the book's in the Bible, you know, so it doesn't matter to me really how you say it. Habakkuk is located in the minor prophets in your Bible, and uh, the minor prophets are kind of a misnomer. If you're a baseball fan, you know the kind of minor leaguers aren't as good as major leaguers, and so it's not that these guys aren't as good at prophets as the other guys. Uh, a better term is that the greater prophets and the lesser prophets But then that kind of still says that one's better and one's worse. My favorite title is the longer prophets and the shorter prophets because these books are shorter. And so the book of Habakkuk is in between Psalms and Matthew in your physical Bible if you're working your way through it. It's a short book. It's three chapters, 59 verses. You can finish it in a small cup of coffee. It's a pretty quick read. But but within it, there are some powerful lessons. And so today I want to share with you three lessons from a dusty book. Because I think most of us haven't spent a lot of time in Habakkuk. And so we're going to start in Habakkuk chapter 1. And we're going to hear from this man with the weird name. Beginning in verse 2, this is what Habakkuk says to God. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or I cry to you violence and you will not save? He goes on, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The first lesson that I take away from the book of Habakkuk is this, that God welcomes honesty. God welcomes honesty. After I wrote that this week, I said, you know, there's a lot of words we could put in that, in that blank based upon our beliefs. Some of us go, God tolerates our honesty. God puts up with our honesty. Some of us will go, God uh, rejects our honesty. God doesn't want our honesty. The reason why I put God welcomes our honesty is because as you read the book, there is this honest banter back and forth between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk lets him have it. I mean, you read that a little, a minute ago. He said pretty straightforward things. God, how long am I gonna have to cry out to you and you're not gonna hear me? Like, where are you? I'm talking. Are you listening? Or I cry out to you. There's violence around me and you're not saving me. Why do you make me see all this iniquity, this sin, this wrongdoing, and you idly look at it? You don't do anything about it. He's pouring out his honesty before God and he doesn't get chastised for it. He doesn't get beat down for it. It seems like God welcomes it. I belabor this point because many of us grew up in environments where this was not the idea you were taught. Maybe you grew up in an environment where uh, you got to church and you all pretended that everything was okay on the way to church when it wasn't. Or maybe when you were around people at church, there were things that you didn't talk about because you didn't people to know what was really going on. Or maybe you just feel like maybe when you show up here, you need to look as good as you can so that people won't know what's really going on in your heart and in your life. I've even said to people that when I talk to them at church and I talk to them somewhere else, we have entirely different conversations because sometimes we don't feel like God welcomes our honesty. We don't feel like we can be honest. I've got a friend, she's in the middle of a really, really hard season and she posted online a couple weeks ago that this verse that I'm about to show you is what has given her hope to continue to pour out her heart to God even when things don't go the way that she wants It's Psalm 116. 
David says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy. Because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. And she says that image that God gets down on one knee and listens to me, even as I rage against him, even as I pour out my honest, unfiltered heart to him, She said, that phrase is the reason I'm still praying. Because God wants to hear from me. And he bends down to hear me. And for many of us, that's a radical and new idea. But it's the story of this guy named Habakkuk. I've got a degree from college and a degree from cemetery, I mean seminary, uh, in the Bible. But I learned something this week that I never knew before. I learned the meaning of Habakkuk's name. Habakkuk's name is twofold. Habakkuk means the one who embraces or the wrestler. The one who embraces or the wrestler. Habakkuk's name teaches us the second lesson from this dusty book, which is that we can wrestle with and embrace God at the same time. We can wrestle with and embrace God at the same time. There are many of us that have bought into this myth, I would say. And the myth is this, that we can wrestle with God or we can embrace God, but we cannot do both at the same time. Many of you were taught this myth, that if you had doubts or questions, if you were skeptical or you had hangups, that you couldn't actually be in relationship with God with those. And so you said, well, I can't ever give my life to Jesus because I have too many questions. Too many things are unresolved. I don't understand these things, so I can't do it. Others of you, those emerged later on, and so you feel like you have to be mentally or intellectually dishonest about them to hold on to your faith. And yet Habakkuk's name reminds us that it's not a matter of either or, that we can wrestle with and embrace God at the same time. Because that's his name. That's his legacy. He is the one who wrestles with God even as he's embracing him. And I want to give you a visual picture of this. Josh and the Beanie, I'm going to ask you to come forward right now. Josh is our drummer today. He killed on the drums. Give him a round of applause as he comes. We did not plan this. Did we plan this? Okay, this isn't about to be super awkward. Just prepare yourself. So what I'm going to ask you to do, are you, are you a hugger? Okay, I'm going to, uh, this, this, is, this is going to be really good. Okay, so here's what I'm, I'm going to ask you to help me visually illustrate this, okay? I'm about to give you, and you're going to give me the most awkward hug you've ever had. Okay, awesome. So this is being recorded for posterity's sake too. So, so this picture here is wrestling with and embracing God at the same time. So what's going to happen is I'm going to hug you. You're going to hug me, and then I'm going to try to get out of the hug. Okay. And you're, going to try to, you're not going to let me out. So it's like the exact opposite of how it normally is. Exact opposite. Yeah, yeah, the opposite. So hug, you try to grab, we both want in. This is like I want in, and then I want out, but you want in and want to stay in. Right. Does that make sense? No, but yes. Okay, okay. So yeah, so that, that, that's what we're going to do right here, okay? You ready? Okay? Right. Pray, pray for Josh right now, okay? Okay, let's go. Okay, all right, all right. hug. And then I'm going to try to get out, Okay. Okay, I'm wrestling. I'm wrestling. Okay, I, I think that's good, okay? All right. Hey, I really, I'm proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's give Josh a round of applause. Thank you, Josh. I'll, I'll buy you some coffee next week. Um, that's the picture that we're talking about here. That you embrace God and wrestle with him at the same time. 
even as he's holding on to you and allowing you to wrestle. And as awkward as that seems, that's the picture we get from Habakkuk's life. Most of us don't like that idea. We like the idea that I'm going to wrestle with God and then I'm going to embrace him afterwards. Or I've been embracing him. I'm going to leave him and go wrestle and maybe come back. But the book of Habakkuk and the dialogue that God has with him and his very name is the reminder that the life we're going to live in relationship with God is not going to include these two things in separate seasons. No, at the same time. And so if you're in the middle of a struggle today, the word I want to give you is this, that you don't have to do one or the other. You can do both. And the myth would tell you that it's not possible at the same time, but the book of Habakkuk reminds us that it is. I want to go to the second chapter of Habakkuk for our last lesson here before I introduce my friend and we share his story. In Habakkuk chapter 2, God has responded to Habakkuk. They've already bantered a little bit. And what God says to Habakkuk is this, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. He's given him this vision. He said, but it's not going to happen yet. He said, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The third lesson from this book is that God's timing and process are often very different from ours. And isn't that the hard part? That if it was our timing and our process, it would be easy because I don't know about you. I have pretty good timing. (laughs) I'm pretty good at laying out a process, but often God's is very different. And that's where the struggle comes in. God, why are you taking so long? God, why are we going this way? God, this isn't the way to get there. I know a shortcut. Or as my son calls it, a short through cut, you know? I I know a better route. And it's in that waiting that the struggle gets even harder. I stumbled on a quote this week from a guy that speaks into this named Oswald Chambers. He says, faith is the deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. That's what faith is. It's not confidence in a God who does everything that you think he should when he thinks he should. It's deliberate. I am choosing this to remain confident in him and his character, even while his ways don't make sense to me in this moment. And one of the things that's been helping me as I wrestle through that in some areas in my own life is this book called Hope in the Dark by Craig Rochelle. It's a study of the book of Habakkuk. It's so popular right now that you can't buy it on Amazon unless you buy it on Kindle. All the books are sold out across the country. But in this book, Groeschel, with a lot of honesty and transparency about his own struggle, talks about how we can believe God is good even when life is not. And if you're in one of those seasons and you need some encouragement and you're a reader, I'd recommend this to you. I'm going to invite my friend Matt to come up on the stage right now, and we're going to share a little bit of his story that intersects this. Would you give Matt a round of applause? (laughs) Matt started coming to Cornerstone uh, several months ago, and when we... uh, we connected once in the lobby, and then uh, I was at Starbucks one day getting my afternoon jolt, and uh, Matt was sitting there, and I had kind of some plans for that day, what I was going to do, but um, Matt and I shook hands, and I sat down, and 
think it was like an hour that passed, we were talking, and that led to Matt getting baptized about six weeks ago here. And um, I told him that day after he'd shared his story with me that, uh, that I knew at some point Cornerstone would need to hear it. And so when we were working on our schedule, this seemed like a great day for it. So Matt, thanks for being up here and being willing to share a little bit. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Would you kind of begin people at the beginning and kind of let them know kind of where your story starts? And Yeah. I, uh, I'll first start with when I was walking in this morning, a, kid came, a little kid came up to me and asked what happened, what happened to my hands, and I told him I picked my nose as a child. <laughs> but I just, I just share that because that's not really what happened. Um, but... So, uh, you know, I grew up in a great family. Um, we were born, I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and real, real outdoorsy family. Uh, my father and I had a lot of experiences in the outdoors. Uh, but I was an athlete. I moved, we moved to Phoenix, and I went to uh, Brophy, which is a, uh, it's a Catholic high school in Phoenix. So I was really exposed to religion there as well. Um, but... In essence, I, uh, I was our shortstop, our point guard, and um, running our running back. back. And uh, my nickname was Sports, you know. Um, but at the same token, I had this real mix of spirituality. I was just in a good place. You were voted most likely to become a? Priest, which is kind of funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I love how everyone laughs at you when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> they know me too well. Uh, yeah, I was. And, and you know, I'd always had... The Jesuits are really neat people. I mentioned this earlier. They, uh, your first three years, you study every other religion until the, year four is Christianity. They kind of lay it out and want you to make a decision. Um, but uh, it was just a great experience. And, you know, but the worst thing we happened as a family, I think we lost a cat. And, uh, you know, as you pointed out, that's not even a bad thing. <laughs> From where I said it, isn't it? Uh, you can send those emails to Clovis at PrescottCornerstone.com. Uh, I'm not involved in compliance. <laughs> uh, so uh, it, life was just easy. And, you know, it's really easy to have a relationship with God when you're in that, that mindset of everything works out. You went to college at Santa Clara? Yeah, I went on to Santa Clara, and, uh, which is... Um, another Catholic school and played baseball there um, all four years and that was a great experience and we have a photo from that era right here yeah I was, yeah. I was pointing out that, that's actually the Berlin Wall there behind um, and that hair is really mine <laughs> <laughs> I had I had the same look I think right on the same time so it's pretty sad <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, you graduated college and you were kind of wrestling with what to do next. Yeah, so that's really where this story begins, is I graduated, and I didn't get drafted, and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, so I came back to Phoenix, and my father had an investment firm in Phoenix, and I was a finance major, so I worked there for a few months, but I really started to question the industry and what some of the things that were going on, and I was thinking about this idea of going on vacation and getting away. Well, ironically, my father came up to me and said, hey, you know, I'm going on a mountain climbing expedition. Would you like to go? And he had gotten into that a little bit while I was at college, and I said, sure. Um, and I had to, I, one of the reasons I wanted to go is I just had a pit that I just, it didn't feel right. Um, we had done so many trips, you know, that just always worked out. You know, I look back, I'm like, how did we not die on so many of those trips? But uh, it always worked out. 
Anyways, I had that feeling in my stomach, and so I went along on this climb. The mountain uh, was called Pico de Orizaba. Um, it's a 18,000-foot uh, volcano in, right outside Mexico City, which a lot of people don't know. Mexico's got mountains like that. And, uh, I think it's the third largest mountain in North America. Yeah, third largest mountain in North America. And it's usually a pretty safe mountain. Um, typically, they get the monsoons, and it gets a nice blanket of snow on top of the glacier. Well, the year we were there, it was like an ice skating ring. And uh, it's probably about, you know, 35 degrees. And um, so if you slip, you're going to go fast and you're going to go far, which we did. <laughs> I'll get to that. Uh, so my father had altitude sickness, and I'd stayed back with him as we hiked up this mountain. And we were just at about 18,000 feet, so just at the summit, just below it. He slipped and fell. And uh, I dove for him, grabbed his jacket, and stopped him. And brought him back up, dug a little hole in the, the glacier, gave him some you know, We just kind of regrouped, I remember. Um, but, but I remember looking to the left and to the right, like, this is, this is real. It was the first time I'd ever been really scared. And uh, I, it just, I had a weird a feeling I'll never forget. But uh, we decided, like we always do, that we're going to keep going. And he, he started looking better, had some color in his face. So we decided to summit. And he stood up. And before I could do anything, I saw him kick out on his crampons. And down he went. And I dove for him. Um, you know, I'm looking straight down at this cliff. It goes straight off, or this glacier. It goes 4,000 feet and then off these cliffs. And, uh, you know, instinctively, I wasn't going to watch my dad do that. It sounds heroic, but it wasn't. I don't remember the first, you know, five seconds of the fall. And uh, I tried to grab his jacket, and when I did, I reached for my ice axe, and it hit a rock and came up here and hit me in the head and knocked me out. Um, we fell 4,000 feet, if you can believe that. Tumbling, uh, my nose was off, my ear was off. They're dangling, I guess. It wasn't all the way off. My ribs were broken. Uh, I believe I had a collapsed lung, but my head was the size of a basketball, which was the worst part about it, uh, so, cause, because I couldn't see. And uh, being stuck at you know, 15,000 feet when it's getting really cold and you can't see is a problem. Uh, so they tried to get a helicopter up to us that night, and uh, they just couldn't get a helicopter up that high. And uh, I remember the pilot radioing down to Senor Reyes, who was this uh, Mexican guide who was taking care of us, and he said, Tell Matt to say goodbye to his dad. They're not going to make it through the night. And uh, he, uh, he just said, you know, God bless, and patted me on the shoulder. I remember I just walked off. And I remember it being like the loudest silence, if that makes sense. The loudest silence I've ever heard. Um, but miraculously, we made it through the, the night. Um, you know, negative degrees for 12 hours, I think it was. And... Uh, I started taking off my clothes, though, which is a symptom of pulmonary edema, and uh, you start feeling warm. So I started taking my gloves off, and that's what happened to me is I got frostbite. And uh, next morning, amazingly, though, I hear a helicopter, and someone on the mountain had a connection with the U.S. Embassy and flew American chopper down, uh, in Apache, uh, maybe it was in Apache, uh, picked us up, and uh, I remember they dropped me off in some preschool playground. Uh, dangling by this rope, and my little kids running around. They probably thought I was an alien. <laughs> I don't know, you have that picture of me, don't you? Somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, was, I always look how my sister's husband is smiling, you know. <laughs> he's, he's real proud of the moment. Uh, he's a fireman, though. That's what they do. Uh, so so, we're, we're, so it, was a long, it was a long road. You bounced around in Mexican villages, you know, Mexico City. You ended up back in the U.S. And yeah. then you told me that you came into your living room in a wheelchair, and there was a visitor waiting for you. Yeah, it was really powerful. Um, walk into my parents' house, which is my new house, you know. I, they're going to take care of me. And it's the first day out of the hospital. And we walk in, and there's, there's John McCain on our couch. And um, we, I, I have one of my best friend growing up shares a cabin with him up in... Uh, Sedona? Little, yeah, just yeah. south of Sedona. And then I'd gone up there, and so I'd gotten to know him a little bit as a kid, and I'd always fish, and I'd always steal his trout. And so I was thinking, Gary, here he is. The, if anyone knows John, he's actually a, he's a funny, he was a funny guy. And, uh, he thought he was coming after you for the trout. Yeah, I thought he was coming after me for the trout. But uh, he didn't. He said something to me that was really powerful that I wasn't ready to hear at the time, but um, I'll never forget. And he said, Matt, when I'm in the prison camps, there's two types of people. There was uh, the majority of the people who just wanted to die. And uh, they had no hope. And then there's the other type of person which I decided to become. And there weren't many of us. But I made the decision that every time someone came in, broke my arm or punched me, I was going to embrace it and love them. And I was going to use it for fuel when I get out of here. And he goes, you've just been given you know, the best fuel you can ever get. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't ready to hear that at the time. Not at all. Um, but he was right. And... Uh, you know, just through adversity, some great things can happen. Uh, it's not fun. <laughs> we can get into that process if you'd like. Yeah. But um, as you know, it took 15 years to get here. Well, you you went you ended up going into the finance industry. Um, you helped people manage their wealth. You became a motivational speaker. And one of the things we were talking about um, was that this thing became an identity issue for you. Who am I without these fingers? And yet that that struggle actually led you into a, a strength in terms of connecting with people. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I, I was defined by my fingers kind of before all this happened with sports. I played guitar. And people think, you know, when you, you lose something as an amputee, uh, like, gosh, he lost his fingers. How is he going to pick his nose? <laughs> you know, that's the easy part. The tough, the, the tough part is you look in the mirror and you're a totally different person. And so I really struggled with my identity and some of the things, but slowly through time, I started to learn something, and that was really the power of vulnerability. And what I mean by that was uh, I was shaking a girl's hand, and she reacted adversely, pulled her hand back, and it crushed me. And uh, I mean, I'd be terrified too, though, if this thing came at me, but... um, it screwed me up. And so I called my buddy Quinn. There's two other guys that have had the same uh, surgery as, as me, Quinn and uh, Beck Weathers, who was in the, in, air. In the, yeah, in the thin in air the by air, John Krakauer. Um, and I called Quinn and said, told him what happened. And he goes, Matt, what are you doing right now? His hands are worse than mine, and Quinn lost his legs. Uh, I said, I'm driving. I was on Squaw Peak down in Phoenix. And he goes, look to the left and the right, all these cars you're passing. He says, every single one of these people has scars, just like us, except ours are on the outside. And you need to get to a point where you're really proud of your scars. And it was another kind of John McCain moment where I wasn't really ready to hear it. Um, 
but it was really powerful. And that was my, my experience to a T as I moved on in the finance world. You know, I'd go in the business meetings and shake someone's hand. I wouldn't tell the whole story, but they would ask, you know, what, what happened? Or a lot of times, they, they'd read the bio in, in, in our little uh, brochure, and it would say I played baseball in college. And, you know, they were always trying to figure out, like, was he a knuckleball pitcher? Or... <laughs> So the story kind of came up, but anyhow, the amazing thing was, is they would share with me, you know, how they lost their wife to cancer, or they had some type of adversity, and we would spend two hours without even talking business, and uh, I really had, I had, I had friends, not clients, you know? So my whole, it really changed me as a person, and uh, vulnerability is a weird thing, you know? No, we don't like to be vulnerable in front of other people, but we love it when someone's vulnerable to us. And, um, yeah, it was a huge, huge turning point for me with that realization that I need to share this. I'm glad you said that. That was one of the two things I wanted to make sure you said up here. The second one was you made a comment to me about the power of honesty with yourself. And that's been a part of kind of bringing you from that world to Prescott. I want to mm-hmm. tell people a little bit about kind of what happened there and what role yeah. honesty played in that. Well, when this happened, I really lost my relationship with, uh, with God and uh, largely because I was on pain meds. The doctors came into my folks uh, while we were in the hospital and said, Matt's biggest problem is not going to be learning how to use his hands. He's going to be a drug addict. And um, so I really struggled with pain meds throughout the years. And when you're on those, you know, you can't have a relationship with God. You, you think you can, but it's just not authentic. You can't feel it. You can't feel change in your soul, growth. And um, I got more you know, further and further away from God. One of the reasons I, was, I ended up taking the pain meds was the help of my anxiety. I never took time to heal. And uh, I just got up and went back to life, and I used it as a crutch. And the materialism, all these things, and the, you know, the worldly pleasures became more and more um, as I was successful, but I became morally bankrupt as a result. And uh, the turning point to your the comment earlier is this, I realized the power of rigorous honesty, and I think a lot of people, if anyone here is in the program, in a recovery program, rigorous honesty is a big principle of AA. And uh, I always thought rigorous honesty was just being totally transparent about everything you've done. Um, No, the the most important part of rigorous honesty and the hardest part is self-evaluation, of admitting your insecurities and admitting your you know, your, your weaknesses and just having humility of, of, of truly where you're at in life. And that includes your strengths too. You know, if you have humility, you know, that's really, you're an accurate assessment of yourself mm-hmm. is really what it is. Um, but that rigorous honesty, you know, you can't heal a, I always use the analogy, you can't heal a wound unless you identify it, right? And um, that that was the recipe to figure out what this wound was. And yeah, I had a wound. I wasn't ready to move on. And, uh, you know, I always thought I was supposed to be someone special. You talked about change of plans. I always thought I was supposed to be someone special, an athlete or someone famous. You know, I always thought that. And then this happened, and it ruined me. And it took 15 years to realize, like, maybe that was God's plan, you know, to do that. Just in a different way. It just wasn't <laughs> the way I drew it up. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's been quite a ride. Well, it was a, it was a pleasure to, to baptize you a few weeks ago up front. 
uh, to be part of that moment with you. And um, Thank you. You, um, you, know, you made a comment to me that day at Starbucks that you'd had a moment where you surrendered your life. You know, there was a part of the, the program that it's kind of God is this nameless, faceless kind of higher power. Yeah. But you identified that that person is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And you surrendered your life to him. And now you're walking a road. You're a story in progress. You know, you're not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not having you up on the stage because you have it all together. But I think you've got a story that's worth encouraging people with. If somebody's in this room and their scars are on the inside, mm-hmm. they're walking through a dark struggle where the plan is not God's plan. You've kind of been down that road a lot. Mm-hmm. What would you say to encourage them? You know, um, one is you need to surrender and give it to God because you, you just can't carry everything. I couldn't, when I first got to Prescott, um, I'm in a, a facility called the Prescott House. It was overwhelming. Uh, it was demoralizing. It was humiliating. You know, I'm taking a cab to the grocery store um, and living in a room, 200-square-foot room with four people. And, but it was exactly what I needed. Um, but my, my advice is there's all kinds of ways and, and things that are important, spirituality, exercise, taking care of yourself. All these things are important to recovery and getting back to uh, or getting through a struggle. But the best advice I can give is I just knew, I had faith that God was always going to even though I was so distant from God at times and doing things that I, I never thought I would do, I knew he would save me. And, um, and yeah, he did. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful to be your friend. And I'm really grateful for what he's brought you through. And your story is a story in progress. And, um, and I think That's the right. best is yet to come. Uh, Ephesians 3.20 says, And to him who is capable of immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine. Right. And right. Uh, that's what my story is for you. Thanks, man. We'll do one of these awkward, awkward hugs. It's okay. Thank you. Awkward hug day. Yeah. Well, um, Matt is going to be out in the lobby after the service if you want to chat with him and um, share together. Um, he's, he's living a powerful story, and uh, we constantly remind each other that just because we've been through stuff doesn't mean we're perfect now or we have it all together. But I, uh, I hope you've been encouraged as much by him as, as I've been. Uh, before we go, there's two things I want to do. The first one is maybe give you some handles about how you can walk through this. And so on the back of your handout, there's a couple blanks that I want to talk to you about and fill in. And, and I'd be calling our next steps. One, and this is just you know me, I would encourage you to go home and read this book of Habakkuk. It's 59 verses. It's short. You know, if you've never read a book of the Bible before, you can knock it out today and, and kind of knock that thing off your list. But, but it's a real honest struggle of back and forth. And while it might not be the language you use, I think there's something there for you. There certainly was for me as I, I did that this week. The second thing I'd encourage you to do is, is do what Matt has done and is doing, is to ask God, what, what are you trying to say to me through this? One of the comments Matt shared earlier in the previous service was from C.S. Lewis, who talks about how God whispers in our pleasures, but he, he shouts in our pain. And sometimes God allows things in our life to get through to us in a way that we've been closed off to before. And so I'd encourage you to ask God, what are you trying to say to me right now, God? And then write down what you sense God's saying. Some of us are so fast to move through life that when God speaks to us, we don't capture it in the moment. And so it's lost. And you may not be a journaler or a writer, but if you sense God saying something to you, put it down on paper so that you can come back to it when you need it. And those moments he shared even 
he remembers because he wrote down the moment with John McCain or the moment with Quinn. And, and God, it may be giving you some of those moments in the near future and encourage you to capture those. And then number three, I would just encourage you to embrace God and wrestle with him until you find peace. To embrace him while you wrestle. The promise that God gives us is that when we exchange our anxious thoughts that he gives us peace, that doesn't always happen immediately. But I truly believe that you can do both these at the same time and the final outcome is peace. I want to end with this quote from Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp said, waiting isn't just about what you're hoping for at the end of the wait. It's also about what you'll become as you wait. And I think part of the struggle with us is that we only see the outcome. We fail to see with what God is doing in the process. And Matt took him 15 years to get here today, but I think it's pretty evident God has been doing some pretty significant stuff along the way. And I believe the same thing is true for you. I said we were going to do two things today. One was those next steps. And two is that we're going to end the service by celebrating and communion together. The two things that unite all of us in this room are one, all of us are broken, screwed up people who have struggles. Right? Yeah, can I get an amen to that? All of us are broken, screwed up people who have struggles. And the second thing that unites many of us is our faith in Jesus. That that is where the source of the power and the strength is to have hope and endure in the struggle. And I know of no greater symbol of that hope than communion. And so the guys have already started passing out the elements. You're going to receive two cups, a a piece of bread and some juice. And we're going to ask you to hold on to those. And while they serve you those and you hold on to those, we're going to sing a song that's been my favorite worship song or church song for the last four months. We've just never sang it here before. And it's called Living Hope. And I truly believe that some of you in this room today need a living hope. And the only living hope I know of that can sustain you through a struggle like you're living or Matt described is Jesus Christ. And so I'd encourage you to meditate and reflect on these words. When we're done singing the song, I'll come back out and we'll receive communion together. I'm going to pray and the band's going to begin to lead us. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.